Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arney. This week, it's all about the future of travel, and we've got our very own drone in the studio to fly around. We've also road-tested the latest driverless cars. We look at the future of flight and 2015's hottest holiday destination, space. Plus, we shine a new light on diabetes research. There's a cheap and quick test for Ebola and how physics can prevent ingrowing toenails. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First up, norovirus. Known as the winter vomiting bug, many of us may be familiar with this pesky pathogen which leads to millions of people being locked to lavatory seats for much longer than they'd like every year. Currently, there is no way to treat it. But now, Professor Ian Goodfellow from the University of Cambridge has been investigating a new drug called favipiravir, which is more normally used to treat flu, but which may have potential applications for both norovirus and even Ebola. The drug causes the virus to mutate itself, quite literally, to death. Ian's with us now. Hello, Ian. Hi, Chris. First of all, give us a quick noro rundown. What actually is it and how does it infect people and so on? So norovirus is probably the most common cause of gastroenteritis in the UK. So it's a stomach bug and it causes vomiting and diarrhoea. It infects individuals through the faecal oral route or through aerosolised vomit. Why is there currently no treatment or no vaccine for it? Human noroviruses, we cannot grow them in the laboratory, so it makes it very, very difficult to understand the biology of these viruses, and that's probably the main reason we don't have vaccines or antivirals as yet. And in this new study, you think that you may have a drug here which will, what, prevent people getting noro in the first place or cut down the period of time that they're suffering with it and so on? The main benefit of having this drug would be to treat people who are chronically infected. So there are a certain number of individuals in the population who are immunocompromised, so they may be undergoing treatment for cancer, and this means that they can get norovirus infection for months or even years. It's particularly that cohort of patients where this drug would be of particular use. What did you do in order to investigate its action? So we have a a mouse model of norovirus infection, of persistent norovirus infection where mice get uh, an infection in their intestines over many, many months. And we treated a number of animals with this drug and we were able to show that in some cases it was able to clear the drug and lead to um, the animals reduced shedding of virus from one animal to another as well. Do we know how it does that? The way the drug actually works is by introducing so many mutations into the viral genome that the viral genome no longer functions properly. So the virus is effectively mutating itself to death. How do you make sure that that only happens to the virus and not one of our own cells? Because 
the same thing if you mutate our own cells, we get cancer. That's true. So the drug itself is it's a class of molecules which are known as nucleoside analogs. So effectively, it's it looks very similar to the building blocks of the viral genome, and this is RNA. And it's specifically copied into the viral genome only by an enzyme that the virus makes. So it isn't incorporated into cellular DNA or RNA, for example. The idea being then that you end up with the viruses that are in the body are just not viable anymore. Where would that be useful, in helping the individual who takes it, or could it be used for, say, controlling onward spread of the virus? One of the other areas we think this type of drug might be of use is where you've got an environment where it's difficult to move individuals, so particularly in old people's homes. So you wouldn't necessarily treat the infected individual, but you would treat all the healthcare workers who might come in contact with them, and then all the individuals who might share a common space. And that's where we think it will have a real impact. And briefly, and you We mentioned at the beginning that this may also work for Ebola. Why do we think that? Well, it works against any virus in cell culture whose genome is made up of RNA. And there's some very nice studies also performed in mice that show that the drug will also work to cure infection in mice. And it's actually been used to treat some of the patients that have been infected with Ebola in the ongoing outbreak. Ian Goodfellow is a virologist at the University of Cambridge. Thank you very much, Kat. Well, in a moment, a new way for diabetics to control their blood sugar by shining a light on a patch of skin. But before that, the UK Met Office recently launched its Space Weather Forecast Centre to help protect us from the threat of severe space weather events. These so-called solar storms begin as a sudden flash on the sun's surface, followed by what's called a coronal mass ejection. This is a radioactive maelstrom of particles that surge out into space. If this hits the Earth, it can damage satellites, knock out GPS systems and even destroy power stations. So how predictable are these events and what causes them? A team led by Tahar Amari at the Ecole Polytechnique near Paris has studied a previous one in detail and now they think they know. Chris has been looking at the study published in the journal Nature with Reading University solar scientist Chris Scott. One of the things that drives space weather are huge eruptions from the sun known as coronal mass ejections. Each one of these is uh, about a billion tonnes of material. And if one of these comes towards the Earth, it brings with it magnetic field, which can disrupt the Earth's magnetic field and lead to all kinds of consequences for our satellite and ground-based infrastructure. So predicting when one of these mass ejections is going to erupt is really the holy grail of the science. And what is frustrating our efforts to do that at the moment? Well, the sun's atmosphere is an incredibly complicated soup of electrified plasma that's churning around and generating very complex magnetic fields. And we know that something happens to reconfigure those magnetic fields, which allows the material to erupt from the surface. And because it's so complicated, several mechanisms have been proposed as to which one would be the cause of such uh, eruptions. Is that with prediction in mind? Exactly that, yes. So the Met Office called this ensemble forecasting. You run the model many times with slightly different uh, initial conditions. And so you can then get a probability of of what it's like in the weather forecasting terms. You can say 60% chance of rain. With this, you could look at the the sun and the solar atmosphere and you can say, well, there's a 60% chance that a mass ejection will be erupted from this region. And this new paper, what have they done and what does this add? So... In this one instance, it looks like they've actually been able to model pretty successfully the evolution of that magnetic field in this knot of material on the sun and predict when it was going to erupt into a mass ejection. 
the challenge is to go from this one observation where you have the benefit of hindsight and you can wind the clock back and you can wind it forward and you can hone your model to match the data. Can you then do that to make a genuine prediction? Can you observe these initial conditions and say how the solar atmosphere is going to erupt? How much of a threat are events like coronal mass ejections to the Earth? We have an increasing reliance on space infrastructure for navigation, for communications. So modern technology is becoming more vulnerable to the vagaries of these conditions in space. We've only really been measuring these things from space for the last 50 years or so. And we know that the likelihood of a really major mass ejection is maybe once every 100 years or so. So anything that we can do to predict when they're going to come will enable us to sort of batten down the hatches, as it were. Well, that was going to be my next question, Chris. What could we do about it? A spacecraft is going to be sitting amongst these particles and there's not really much you can do about it. But what you can do is you can turn off any high voltage electronic systems on the spacecraft. It's a bit like the advice we get, don't drive on the motorways if it's very windy, for example. They're just saying the risks are higher. So if you can possibly avoid it, then do so. And what about any would-be space tourists or people who happen to work in space? Astronauts aboard the International Space Station, for example. And what you need to do is to just make sure the astronauts are not outside and exposed to the worst of the conditions. And there is even a couple of places on the space station which have a little bit more shielding than anywhere else. So you could get your astronauts to shelter in there. Dr Chris Scott at Reading University commenting on recent research into space weather. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arnie. It's relevant we're talking about space weather because later on we'll be talking about space travel and space tourism. Stay tuned to find out. With cases of Ebola having now spread to New York, scientists in America have now developed a cheap and simple test that could be used on the Ebola virus. It uses just a piece of paper and gives an answer in under 20 minutes. The team in Harvard found that cells in a dish can be engineered to make them undergo a colour change when they come into contact with the genetic material of Ebola. If these cells are broken apart and freeze-dried onto pieces of paper, all of the chemical machinery of the cells remains intact and stable for long periods of time at room temperature. To make it active again, you just add a drop of water, which can be in the form even of a sample from a patient. Harvard's Jim Collins discovered the technique. What we specifically have done is created now sensors that can detect the presence of, for example, antibiotic resistance or the presence of pathogens, including viral pathogens. You could take a sample from a patient, spot them on a paper disc that's been prepared with our material and see if it changes color. If it changes color, for example, from yellow to purple, it would indicate that you may have a resistant bacterial infection or you may be infected with a certain virus. This means presumably you could use some of the components in the cells to do, for instance, paper-based tests or to do chemical reactions on a piece of paper that would be really easy to store and transport. That's correct. What we discovered is that you can take the materials inside a living cell, spot it on paper, we'll flash freeze them, and you now have your prep. We can store them. Keith has stored these for many, many months in his desk drawer. He could then take them out. And we then would just rehydrate them with something as simple as water and either have a trigger that might be a molecular component that we want to detect or a chemical that we want to detect in order to 
see if something's present and or to initiate the reactions with the machinery that, that are spotted on these paper discs. Now, turning to something which is dominating the headlines all over the world and has done for a number of months now, and that's the Ebola crisis. One of the really big frustrations for people working in West Africa is the lack of rapid testing facilities. Could you take what you're doing here and produce a piece of impregnated paper so that people would have a rapid diagnostic for Ebola cases? In principle, yes. As one of our proof of principle demonstrations in our paper, what we did was in a matter of just 12 hours, develop 24 different sensors using some of the engineered machinery that we invented to detect an element of the virus that would be produced. Our system could give you a readout in 20 to 25 minutes. They cost just pennies. And these sensors could detect very low amounts of the virus. Now, mind you, at present, this is an academic exercise. This platform is not yet ready to be distributed into the field and used in uh, clinics around the world. But we are confident that this could eventually form the basis of a rapid diagnostic test for various pathogen outbreaks, including Ebola. What is the output? In other words, when you do, a say, a pregnancy test, everyone knows they're looking for blue lines on a white background. When you run one of your tests, how do you know what is a positive and what is a negative? It depends on the system that we set up, but the one that we're most commonly using is we have developed a sensor that when it turns on, it would produce an enzyme that would change the paper color from yellow to purple. Could you also use it to look at the body's own biochemicals? For instance, could you do a test on somebody to see if they had X level of something in their body or they were carrying a gene which gave them risk of Y disease? Yes. So uh, going beyond just, say, infectious disease applications, we've shown already that you can use this to, for example, sense physiological levels of glucose in a given sample. We were able to spot an already engineered glucose sensor onto paper and have it function in response to very low amounts of glucose and actually give you a readout of how much glucose is present. One could also envision using this in order to sense and diagnose the presence of complex diseases such as cancer. Jim Collins from Harvard University with a wonderful piece of news which he published this week in the journal Cell. Now, type 2 diabetes affects around 1 in 10 of the UK population and costs roughly £1 million per hour to treat. Diabetics can't control their blood sugar levels properly because they can't make enough of the hormone insulin or their cells don't respond to it properly. One way to manage the condition is with strict control of weight and dietary intake, but also drugs that boost insulin levels or cellular responses can help, although they come with side effects that can cause long-term health problems. But now, a team at Imperial College have been working on a way to increase the effectiveness of a common diabetes drug called sulfonylurea by shining a light on it. Daniel Hodson. We've based our drug on a sulfonylurea, which has been around since the 1940s. It was uh, discovered just after the World War. And what this drug does is it binds to cells in the pancreas and increases their ability to release insulin. So what we've done is we've taken this drug and we've made it photoresponsive. So that means it becomes um, active when we illuminate it using a light. Can you show me then? How, how does this work? We've got some pictures here. Some yeah, so so the, the, this is um, basically the molecule here. This is the three-dimensional structure of the molecule. But what you will see is that when we 
uh, light the molecule, it changes shape. So it, it, well, when it's illuminated, the molecule becomes smaller, and this increases its ability to uh, function in the pancreas to, to release insulin. It's bent in half, and that makes it more effective, basically. Essentially, yeah. And the reason it does this is because it contains a special chemical structure called an azobenzene. And most people will be familiar with these structures because they're used in dyes. They're very colourful, so they can be purple, they can be orange. But the reason they're colourful is they absorb light. So it's this property which we've taken uh, here uh, and imbued upon our uh, molecule. Then what happens? You've got this molecule that bends in light, so how do you, how do you get it to where it's needed? At the moment, we've only really de- um, sort of looked at this in vitro, sort of in um, test tubes and in, in tissue from human donors. But what we do know is that when you apply the drug, this is uh, an example here, you can see nothing happens to the cells in the pancreas. This is uh, a recording video, yeah. here. And then as soon as we switch the light on, you can see the cells beginning to flash and flicker. Yeah, and when oh, the cells are wow. flickering like this, that means they're releasing insulin. Essentially, we can turn it off. It's just I've just turned the light off now, and, and, and the cells are doing nothing. So we can switch it on and off very quickly to increase how the cells activate to release insulin. In, in terms of using this in humans, we're obviously quite a long way off. I mean, this is not sci-fi. I mean, it, it functions well in the lab, but we need to figure out ways in which we can non-invasively deliver light into the human body. And, yeah, because um, your pancreas is quite deep inside, isn't it? Exactly. How are you going to blast yeah. it? And I guess one of the other problems with um, diabetes is that it's mainly associated with obesity. So you, you've got to get this light into some uh, fairly large abdomens as well. But one of the beauties about this compound is it's extremely light sensitive. So it only needs a little bit of light to activate. So theoretically, you should be able to get light for into your abdomen. I mean, a good one is sort of when you're a kid and, uh, I don't know, you, your parents let you camp in the garden with your mate and you've got the torch... So you stick the torch in your mouth and you illuminate it in the dark and you see instantly, you know, light obviously penetrates through the skin, but whether we can get this into the abdomen, we, we need to begin to investigate. And, and we, we're currently uh, getting those studies underway to see if this is going to be a practical possibility. Say that it does work, what could be the benefits of making this much more targeted? One of the benefits is that when you, when you think about a drug, it's like taking a sledgehammer to crack a nut. It's going to work on its receptors in, in many different tissues throughout the body. And this causes side effects, undesirable side effects. So being able to target the drug to where it's needed is incredibly important as a refinement treatment. But also it allows you to switch on and off drug activity when required. This is particularly important here because if you think about when you need to release insulin, it's after you've just ingested food and had a meal so ideally you would switch the drug on release insulin after you've ingested food and then switch it off and this stops you kind of overstressing the cells and releasing too much insulin so you can almost imagine sitting down you have your meal and then quick blast of light off you go exactly yeah um it's, it's some way off but i mean the hope would be you would sort of have like some leds attached to you something no bigger than than, than a nicorette patch or something like that and then you would literally just remote control it you would just switch it on using bluetooth or your uh, telephone and then you know this would switch the drug on and allow you to pack away the glucose so it's not causing any undesirable effects. Daniel Hodson with a ray of hope for diabetes patients. You'd have to be a bit careful if you went to a nightclub if you use that wouldn't you? <laughs> it could get dangerous. It's one of those problems that have plagued us for generations and for which nobody seems to have an answer. Why do we get ingrown toenails? 
Despite the best efforts of manicurists and chiropodists, they always seem to persist. They always seem to persist, and it can be very painful to chop out the offending bits of intruding nail. They can also cause serious infections for people with diabetes. But now maths has come. But now maths has come to the rescue because, according to Nottingham physicist Cyril Rauch, three of the most common nail problems are a direct result of the stresses and strains on the nail. So how should we be shaping our nails to combat the dreaded ingrown toenail? Tim Revel cuts to the chase, if not the quick. Essentially speaking, from a physics standpoint, you've got two stresses: an addition stress and a growth stress. Now, in physics, if you want simple normal conditions, you need to make sure that all the stresses can balance each other. But in some cases, this the balance between the growth stress and the adhesion stress don't balance each other, and this can lead to a sort of an excess of force, which will have a tendency to buckle the nail plate. As a result of that, you may develop some well-known conditions like ingrown nails. Or you know,、uh, pincer nails. Sounds painful. When the forces on your nail are out of balance, you're at risk of getting a painful nail condition. But the way that you cut your nails can help. There are ways of filing nails or cutting nails to,、uh, in fact, diminish or to stop the sort of amplifications of the imbalance that exists between the growth force and the adhesion forces. And I can give you one example. If you imagine that you can take your nail out of your finger and then you can put it on your desk as a flat, now the edge that is curved, if you want to avoid any problem, has to follow a sort of parabola. We found that if the nail follow a parabola, the likelihood of developing conditions of of, of your nails that are again, you know, related to sort of imbalance of growth and additions, is almost nil. Parabolic nail cutting is the future, or in other words, model your manicure on a U shape. If you cut your nails this way, you should be able to avoid some pretty painful nail conditions. So make sure to tell your manicurist. That was Dr. Cyril Rauch, who's from the University of Nottingham, and he was reporting those findings in the journal Physical Biology. So you'll have to stop chewing your toenails as well, Kat. <laughs> I am a fingernail biter, I'm afraid. You are listening to the Naked Scientists, and onto the main thrust of the show this week. Now we're looking at the future of travel. Just when you thought your commute was getting boring, over the next fifty years, getting to work on time and heading out to the hinterlands for your family holiday will become much, much easier, and perhaps. Even pleasurable? Surely not. We are journeying into the not so distant future—a place where cars will drive themselves, drones will deliver your pizza, or even repair buildings for you. Planes are being redesigned to be better, faster, stronger, and maybe a more comfortable place. And we could even be heading to outer space for our vacations. The next generation of transportation is very nearly here, and we're taking a magnifying glass to some of the most exciting developments in the field. So first, we're joined by Mirko Kovac. Now he and his team of scientists at Imperial College London have been designing a type of flying drone. These are bio-inspired by swiftlets, tiny birds that build nests using their own spit.、Uh, he's very kindly joining us here and has brought some of these micro-aerial vehicles, as they're called, to show me what they're capable of. Hi, Mirko. Thanks for coming on. Hi, my pleasure. Let's have a look first at one of these things you brought. So, what is a drone? What are these things, and what do they do? 
Now, drones are basically flying robots or flying unmanned aerial vehicles. And so what they can do is they can take pictures from, from above, from the sky, but they can also interact with the environment and create structures, repair structures, or take samples of the soil or, or of water. And we mostly hear about drones in the context of military spying or, uh, you know, doing nasty things like dropping bombs and stuff like that. That's presumably not what you're about here. Yeah, of course, there are a lot of ethical questions and discussions that happen around these areas. And what's different from these big military drones is that they are basically airplanes. But the small drones that we can buy for a few pounds is that it's fueled by electronics, consumer electronics and cell phone technology, basically. So they get really cheap now and uh, they are widely available. Now, I'm kind of a bit worried about the idea of lots of drones flying around that could take pictures. I mean, would they take pictures of me while I'm sunbathing in my bikini? I don't, I don't really want that. How how do I know what's a good drone and what's a, a maybe a, a pervy drone? Yes, I think we, we need to discuss this as a society of what is ethical use of drones. And for there are different questions that come to mind. One is on privacy, so not to film people when they don't want to be filmed. I think we need to protect that. But we also need to take care that drones don't do something that is potentially dangerous, that they're not in the hands of terrorists, for example, or that they're not carrying out tasks that are critical or dangerous or life-death decisions. I think there are things that the human needs to be in the loop and we need to create a framework, an ethical framework of what should be allowed and what not. So we've got a couple sitting on the desk here. Now, uh, talk to me about this one. This thing's about, I guess, the size of my hand. It's got four little helicopter blades sitting around something about the size of an egg, I guess. So this I would call it's a nano-quadcopter. So it's very small and it can carry some sensors. Now, we use those uh, in research to do swarm-coordinated actions and we can have thousands of them that will be deployed from a bigger airplane or for a mothership drone and then create and interact together to collaborate and do things. Like a little flock of these tiny things going out there. Exactly. So they could be a flock that then can build structures like termite wood in flocks or in swarms. Or they can also just sample the environment because we have many of them. And even if we lose part of them, even we lose 80%, let's say, they're very cheap. So we still get a lot of data back. OK, let's put this one to the test. I can try. Right. Off we go. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Buzzing the microphone. Ah, that seems to be slightly hard to control. How are you and your team working on how to control these uh, little drones? Yeah, I'm not a very good pilot for these drones, so that's why we work on autonomous control, so they can control themselves based on onboard sensing and onboard intelligence. What we also work on is on the platform design, so create new drones that can do new things, such as repair of structures. So how would that work? How could something that's a small little flying drone build a structure? For that we look at nature and we look at the animal kingdom and we look in particular at these birds that use their saliva to build nests. So these birds basically invented 3D printing many million years ago and so we copied their principle of additive layer manufacturing to build up structures. Now we do this with expanding foam on the drone. Not spit. No. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike the birds. No, no, the drones use uh, polyurethane foam or could use any kind of other chemicals. They can layer up and like this build up structures or repair structures. So I can see that could be really useful for maybe very far away environments or possibly really dangerous environments. I guess we heard about the Fukushima nuclear reactors. You wouldn't want to send people there to repair it, would you? Yeah, that's exactly right. It's a very good application in our areas where people don't want to go. But also important is areas or situations where quick 
response is required, such as an oil spill uh, or a leak in an oil pipeline. So there it's very important to very quickly react to this, and there a drone could go and seal this leak very quickly and effectively. We've also heard recently in the news about the idea of delivering things with drones, you know, maybe your online shopping or something like that, perhaps even a pizza. I'm feeling quite peckish. Where are we with that? I think we're pretty close to that. So we're not so far, but there are a lot of challenges on how to fly drones safely in cities, close to humans, how to avoid each other, how to have a regulatory framework that allows the regulation of the traffic, like air traffic control. But the technology is almost there for delivery. And what could be some of the applications? I mean, for example, we're in the grip of the Ebola crisis at the moment, and one big problem is you can't get medications, you can't get tests through. Is this the kind of area where drones could really help? I completely believe so. In fact, in areas where the infrastructure is not developed yet, such as developing countries, so instead of going into the um, building roads or building ground infrastructure, there is a big movement in creating aerial drone-based delivery systems uh, at a fraction of the cost that would be much faster and more effective for medical deliveries, blood supplies, for example. And obviously the need in some parts of the world is incredibly urgent for this, but how soon do you think we might start seeing little drone armies or drone swarms going out and doing these kind of things? So I think the drone delivery is very close, so we need to create a legislation for that. And we need uh, air traffic control, but we also need onboard sensors and ways how to avoid each other, how to avoid obstacles. And there again, I think we can learn a lot from nature that does it already very, very effectively. Thank you very much. That's uh, Imperial College's Mirko Kovac and his uh, 3D printing and Swiftlet-inspired drones. Now, would you take a trip into space for a holiday or even an intercontinental flight aboard a transparent aircraft? The view, if nothing else, should be breathtaking. Next, we'll be talking to two people who are making these concepts a reality. But before that, back down to Earth and the car. There's a scene in the Steven Spielberg film Minority Report in which Tom Cruise settles into an automated vehicle. The car glides down the side of a building, onto a motorway, disappears into a driverless fleet and then navigates through a city effortlessly. Of course, driverless cars have long been the realm of fantasy, but the world's fleet of self-driving cars could be operating a lot sooner than Minority Report would have you believe. Greer Jackson flew out to Sweden just last week to check out Volvo's drive me project, the scheme which will be unleashing a hundred driverless vehicles on the streets of Gothenburg, Sweden, in just two years' time. I'm Erik Kooling, and I work as senior technical leader for safety and driver support technologies at Volvo Cars, and I'm responsible for a, a lot of the research and pre-development of active safety systems, that is, systems that help drivers to avoid collisions, but also for the development of cars that can drive themselves. So we've all seen in sci-fi movies cars that can drive themselves. I'm sure I've seen one with Arnold Schwarzenegger who drives around in a driverless car in some action movie. But how did this become a reality and why? Well, for a couple of years we've been working on these collision avoidance systems and we see that it really makes a difference in reality. If you extrapolate this development, it becomes very obvious that we are slowly, step by step, moving towards cars that can drive themselves. And we're actually standing just outside one of the prototypes you've got here in the drizzling rain. So let's let's jump in and have a drive. OK, let's go. Now, I'm sure many of you are picturing a futuristic bubble of a car. I know I was. But actually, looking at it from the exterior, you couldn't tell. And the interior wasn't too different either. Bar one key thing. So in, in this car, I can just press one button and then the car will drive itself completely automatically. 
but please understand this is a very early prototype uh, so also if you look at the buttons it's really prototype buttons and when you say prototype buttons it's literally a bit of sticky tape that has on written on it so is it literally a case of switching it on and off then yeah it is and what we'll do is that we will first drive maybe 10 minutes until we come to the ring road around Gothenburg we drove in the normal fashion until we reached the driverless zone, a ring road around Gothenburg where the city council have allowed Aerie and his colleagues to test out the technology amongst real flowing traffic. The sticky tape button was pressed and... Right now I've just released the steering wheel and the car is driving itself completely automatically. It's quite disconcerting. I've been doing this for a while now and it feels pretty undramatically. So there wasn't a noticeable difference from switching from driving to an autonomous or driverless system, only a slight sort of jolt change in, in speed, but otherwise it was pretty seamless. So, I mean, the only thing that you noticed in this case was that there's no engine torque, so you're slowing down really, really slowly, um, but otherwise it's, it's pretty smooth. The driving wheel made minor twists and turns, aligning itself to be precisely equidistance between the two lane markers. It even accelerated to drive exactly 70 kilometres per hour, the speed limit of this ring road. And although we didn't have to do any emergency stops mid-drive for pedestrians or stray cats, Eddie assures me that it would stop and have better reaction times than you or I. Why? Because it can sense cars for 200 metres around us and pedestrians for 80 metres further than what us mere mortals would ever be able to detect. But how does this all-singing and all-dancing car see its surroundings? Well, the cars use very advanced sensor technology in order to monitor the traffic environment. So we're using radars and cameras to detect cars, pedestrians, and we use a very accurate map so we know exactly in which lane we are, what's happening around us. Based on that information, the car plans its path. So we're planning what accelerations we should have, how to steer the car, and the car is then executing that using electric motors and brake system, etc. And the camera in the front, what is that specifically used for? If you're using the radar to send to the cars around you, what's the camera being used for? Uh, we also use the camera to detect cars. But cameras can also read speed limits on signs. They can read the lane markers, a lot of different things. But we use different sensing principles, camera, laser and radar, to really get a robust system. Because each sensing principle has its own advantages and disadvantages. And by combining different physical principles, you can get rid of the, the worst disadvantages and make a really robust systems that work almost all of the time. And will it be using things like cloud data connecting to the internet and that sort of thing? Yeah, these self-driving cars, they will be continuously connected to the cloud. And one reason is that we always want to be able to have the latest map data. So, for example, if there would be a construction site on these roads, then we want to know exactly where this construction site is so that the car can prepare for it. So my one concern with something being connected to the internet is that things can be very easily hacked. Does that mean someone could tamper with your car and potentially even steal away its autonomy? Those kind of risks are never zero. They are really small. We are aware of the risk that people try to break into the car and we're working very hard to minimize the risk. But of course, I mean, you can never guarantee that the risk is zero. That's, not, that's just never the case. So as you mentioned before, we are driving a prototype. How are you going to go about making sure it is safe? 
when we are successful with the development and with the verification of the technology, then in 2017 we want to provide 100 vehicles that can drive themselves to customers in Gothenburg. So these people can use the cars in daily life, they can drive to school, they can drive to work, whatever they want. But if they are on one of the selected roads, the ring road around Gothenburg, they have the possibility to press this button and have the car drive itself such that he or she can do something else behind the steering wheel. I can see the immediate benefit of being able to disengage while stuck in that boring commuter traffic. I could hike back my chair, drink a coffee and check my emails, perhaps even check out the latest news on, of course, nothing other than the new Naked Scientist app. But are there any benefits beyond using my time much more pleasurably? The benefits of self-driving can be that we can make traffic safer, we can make traffic more energy efficient, less polluting, but also we can make a road traffic system that is more efficient, that is get a better traffic flow and better use the road capacity. So we are just pulling back into Volvo's headquarters and our journey is complete. So do you really see this as the future then? Is this what we're going to be driving around in 2054 and 50 years' time? Well, I think it will happen. The big question is when it will happen. But in 2017, we'll have 100 cars. And if that is successful, then we really have reached a stepping stone towards a road transportation system with self-driving cars that's much more sustainable. Incredible stuff. Eric Cooling, he's the Senior Technical Specialist for Safety and Driver Support Technologies at Volvo up into the air now and getting a window seat on a plane is a hot commodity but what if the aircraft was just completely see-through no more leaning over your fellow passengers to gape or perhaps quake at the views below well this is just one of the concepts that airplane manufacturers airbus are hoping to incorporate in the future designs along with biosensors hand printing and cabins that are customized to the needs of individual passengers it sounds pretty enticing doesn't it we're joined now by colin sirrett head of research and technology at airbus he joins us from bristol can you just paint me a picture then? What do you see as maybe the, the plane journey of the future? If I was, say, flying to, uh, to Boston, a trip that I did a couple of weeks ago, what might an experience in the future look like for me on one of your new planes? Well, you'd probably start before you actually get anywhere near the aircraft. You've Once you've purchased your ticket, you'd already have your details, your personal preferences on record. And a lot of those actually exist today so that the aircraft and the airline know exactly what your personal preferences are. So when you scan your or have a palm print uh, to to enter the aircraft rather than just a normal boarding pass, it knows exactly where you like to sit. It will have an idea of how often you want to be disturbed, for example, with the drinks trolley or even what sort of meals that you actually really would prefer not to have. So we can actually build up a print of exactly what every passenger's requirements are. Where you actually sit in the aircraft might not in the future be by the relative class, uh, first business or economy. It could be by how what you want to actually do during the flight. If you want to work during the flight, there'll be a workspace area. Uh, if you just want to sleep, a uh, sleep area. Or if you just want to immerse yourself in connectivity and your own Uh, social media, then there'll be a full entertainment area. The thing I I struggle with, and I know tall people have the opposite problem, the seats just aren't comfortable for me at all. We've conducted a lot of work with looking at morphing structures. Uh, And these are structures where you actually sit on the seat and the seat then, over a short period of time, adopts the shape of your body. 
So you don't have any particular pressure point in your posture. One of the things there that we've mentioned is the, the see-through aeroplane. Now, to some people, that might be the most absolutely godforsaken, terrifying thing in the world. But to someone like me, I think that's cool. How would that work? How would you have a see-through fuselage? Well, we've actually got the technology around us today to create the illusion of a see-through uh, fuselage. And that would be by having small cameras around the outside of the aircraft, projecting an image directly onto the interior skin. Now, that, as you say, is quite a scary prospect for a lot of people. But we could take it one step at a time where we could eliminate all windows in the aircraft and just have patches of these transparencies to simulate the windows. And that, for us, reduces a significant amount of weight for the aircraft. And I guess one of the hot topics in aviation is the amount of energy, the amount of fuel that it takes to, to do flights. Is there anything that you guys are doing briefly to try and maybe reduce the costs or use alternative and maybe less environmentally damaging types of fuels and energy sources on these planes? There's a great deal of research that's been conducted on biofuels, and we should say that they are sustainable biofuels. And we are now cleared to have up to 50% mix of biofuel and fossil fuel and still fly. And also you've got you know, quite a lot of warm bodies on a plane. Could, could that be any use to you? It is. And one of the, uh, coming back to, to our, our seat again, uh, we're looking at energy harvesting. And that's actually taking the heat from a body to feed that, convert that into electricity and then feed that in maybe to, to power the interior lighting system of the cabin. I love the idea I could be sitting on a flight in the future and, you know, powering my own uh, TV in front of me from my own body heat. <laughs> Thank that you. That would exactly be the case. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds absolutely wonderful. So, I mean, all of this sounds very, very wonderful and it could be really cool, but is this really feasible financially? How much would this kind of technology cost? The cost of technology is, and this type of technology, is, is coming down all the time. And we can see a route to a lot of the technologies that we've put forward in the future aircraft and the concept cabin. Everything, quite naturally, has to buy its way onto the aircraft. We won't pay as a, as a travelling public. We don't want to pay any more than we are today. So the challenge we always have is not just technology for technology's sake, it's got to come in at a price point where both yourself, myself and, and everyone else is prepared to pay the ticket price. Thank you very much. That's Airbus's Colin Sirrett on the future of flight. Aeroplanes might be getting much more passenger friendly, but it looks as though the destination of choice for this century is going to be space. So make your reservations now because more than 700 people, including reportedly astrophysicist Stephen Hawking, are waiting to gain official status as space cowboys, each forking out a quarter of a million dollars to hop aboard Virgin Galactic's Spaceship Two. Spaceship Two is a jet-powered aircraft and it's set to take six passengers at a time to the outer boundaries of the Earth's atmosphere. The spaceship wouldn't have been possible, though, without the help of the X Prize, which was a not-for-profit organisation that awards money to radical ideas that will bring about breakthroughs for the benefit of humanity. Ten years ago this month, Spaceship One 
won the $10 million Ansari X Prize, and Virgin Galactic have since been developing it to form Spaceship Two. With us from St. Louis is Greg Marinak, who is the founder and also one of the directors of the X Prize Foundation. Hello, Greg. Hello, Chris. First of all, tell us a little bit about, because I understand Richard Branson showed you around Spaceship Two recently. What's it like? Paint a picture for us. Well, it's it's really huge. Spaceship One, which won the Ansari X Prize, is the size of a four-person light plane that you'd find at you know an airport any place in the world. Spaceship Two is quite quite a bit larger. Whereas Spaceship One could fly you and me and one other person to 100 kilometers altitude. If we're flying on Spaceship Two, we have two pilots. And six people can fly in the back, and they can unstrap and float around in zero gravity for about five minutes during a flight. So it's a radically larger aircraft. So the bottom line is you take off strapped into your seat on Spaceship Two, but it's on the back of a bigger vehicle, an aeroplane, which gets you airborne in the first place. And then how does it get into space? It hangs actually below the carrier aircraft, which has two fuselages. So some of your friends might get to see you off from altitude. And it drops away from the uh, carrier plane after about an hour's flight to get to launch altitude. And it ignites its rocket engine, which is essentially powered by the same material that you have in the tires of your car, uh, made to burn very rapidly using uh, an exotic oxidizer that is usually called laughing gas, nitrous oxide. And the, the nitrous makes the, the rubber, the synthetic rubber, burn very rapidly. And that provides the thrust to accelerate you to the speed required to get you to 100 kilometers, which is the so-called Kármán line, the line above which everyone agrees you're in space. How are the people recovered from space? They have their six minutes of floating around. They presumably are not going to redock with the aircraft that got them halfway there in the first place. They've got to get down to the ground. How do you recover Spaceship Two. Spaceship Two glides to a landing on the surface of the Earth. So it is an unpowered glider, and it will land at places like Mojave, where it's been landing for its test flights, and also at a brand new spaceport in New Mexico, in the vicinity of White Sands uh, Missile Range in New Mexico, south of Albuquerque. Tell us about the danger side of this. What will happen to the people? If something goes wrong, and is there a chance that something's going to go wrong? These people are subjecting themselves to something that is more dangerous than uh, driving around in cars, probably more dangerous than flying themselves around in light aircraft, probably less dangerous than uh, scaling tall mountains. But it is not a a risk-free activity. And, you know, these people will be real pioneers and, and in my book, heroes. They'll be doing the same exact thing that folks like uh, Alan Shepard and Gus Grissom did in 1961, the year that humans first went into space. And since then, less than 600 people have flown to space. So the 700 folks who have made deposits to fly on Spaceship Two, you know, will, will double the the population of human beings that have had the opportunity to see the Earth from space. And they're going to do something else. The reason that we did the X Prize was not so rich white people could fly in space, although they will. It's so that we can have a completely different financial basis for doing spaceflight and open up space 
for lots of useful purposes for all of us on Earth. The, the economic problem with spaceflight is there's not enough of it. In a really great year, there are maybe 15 or 20 commercial satellites for the entire world that need to be launched. So if there were only 15 or 20 airplane takeoffs in a year, none of us could afford to fly. And we, back 15, 16 years ago, were thinking, what's the perfect ideal commercial payload of the future that will require thousands of takeoffs and landings, maybe even a week? And we realized it's us, people, self-replicating carbon-based payloads that you can make using common things you find around the house. So is your view then that, that the idea of, of pushing forward and, and making this a tourist thing is that the money will follow the people, this will open up new opportunities? Oh, there absolutely There are many. There, there's, not just, there's not any one specific one, although there are some huge ones. The problem is the cost of getting even just our tools into space right now is about 4,000 pounds a kilogram. So it's really expensive. We've got to get those costs down, and the way to do it is to do more of it. And that's what space tourism will be. It'll be a stepping stone to a, a large array of future opportunities. And we're already seeing it uh, as a result of our XPRIZE. There are now some reusable space vehicles that have flown literally hundreds of times to take scientific payloads up and back, whereas the normal rocket used for that purpose flies once or statistically a little bit less than once because they're not all successful. Will you be getting a ticket? I hope so. I won't get one when the price is uh, what it is today. It's a bit expensive for my taste, but many of the various providers that are in this area have said that their initial fee will come down considerably, maybe as much as a factor of four or five. So when the cost of making a once-in-a-lifetime trip to space to see the Earth from space is about the cost of getting a, a mid-range new car, I think there will be many people that will do it. In fact, the, the studies indicate that you can maximize your profit as a business entity if the cost is somewhere in the vicinity of about uh, 12,000 pounds. There's an interview in the Daily Telegraph, one of the British broadsheets this weekend with a Chinese businessman who's just bought one of the tickets and uh, he appropriately enough is called in Chinese the equivalent of Skywalker. That's lovely well how nice is that so uh, hopefully he won't have to do any walking at all during his flight maybe floating would be a better name for him Sky Floater. Greg Maranak from the X Prize and thank you to our other guests this week Ian Goodfellow, Colin Sirrett and also Mirko Kovac. Now it's time for our question of the week with Greya Jackson and this week we're future gazing to see how life on Earth might come to an end. This week Abigail has been dying to find out the answer to this question. What will be the cause of the end of life on planet Earth? Will it be when the sun dies or something else? Will hungry humans be the cause of the apocalypse or will it be something like the catastrophic comet that caused the dinosaurs to go extinct? We put it to you on Facebook, and Paul came back with this. Humans may survive, breeding, warring, poisoning, destroying, and plundering forever. But I fear nothing habitable will be left behind, for humans are a cancer to all life. Whereas Jeremy thought life was just too hardy to ever go extinct. Life is persistent stuff. NASA tried to create a sterile room to build Mars rovers to prevent interplanetary contamination. What did they find? Bacteria that evolved to eat the paint in the sterile room. So, will life always find a way to endure, no matter what happens to Earth? 
To find out, we spoke to astronomer Royal Martin Rees from Cambridge University. We know that the sun will die in about six billion years. When that happens, it'll flare up, become a red giant and engulf the inner planets and end any life remaining on Earth. Long before that, in fact, life had become uncomfortable on Earth because the sun's getting brighter all the time. So after about one billion years from today, the oceans would start to boil. The Atlantic boiling, our sun exploding. Six billion years from now, do we have any hope? I would expect that in a few hundred years, there'll be communities living away from the Earth on asteroids or on Mars, and they will in fact use genetic technology and cyborg technology to modify themselves. So they'll be post-humans already. But if we imagine that the Earth has ahead of it more time that it's taken to go all the way from simple organisms to humans, then we can imagine that by the time the sun dies, there'll be life descended from human life all through the galaxy, perhaps, and taking many different forms. So human life may end on Earth, but not elsewhere in the universe. Thanks, Martin. Next week, we'll be twirling our moustaches over this bearded beauty of a question sent in by listener Mark. I've been taking part in Movember, which is a, a fundraiser for cancer research where men raise money by growing a moustache over the course of the month of November, hence the M in Movember. It's been 10 years since I've grown any hair on my chin, and this year it's growing white. The hair on my head isn't white, it's not grey, and my question is, why is my facial hair growing white? I don't really want people to think I'm dyeing it. Have you had this bristly issue before? Or are you growing a beard or a tash for Movember? Send us pictures of your moustaches. Oh God, we may have opened the floodgates. And any thoughts that you might have that might help Mark. You can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can find us on Facebook. You can tweet at Naked Scientists. Or you can join the debate on our forum. That's thenakedscientist.com slash forum. And that is it for this week. Thank you very much to Greer Jackson for her help with production. And also Tim Revel and Amelia Perry. Next week, we're going all out because, in the meantime, it's Halloween. We're delving into the science of the very spooky. How did the tales of vampires and werewolves come about? What's the science behind the alleged ghost recordings from abandoned buildings? And how suggestible are you? Could we trick you? with some simple psychology experiments. Find out next time. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and the STFC. My name's Chris Smith and thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.